Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, The Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rolo University Medical Center. I'm Ronuk. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. On today's episode, we continue our capstone discussion with Dr. Emily Mason, talking about HemePath and the application of all the HemePath stuff that we've talked about the last few weeks. Guys, I don't know how I made it through that recording. I don't, I think I forgot to tell you, but I cut myself in the kitchen trying to slice a piece of bread. We saw, we saw the hand. So um, I don't know if you noticed, I've been clutching this paper towel for the last hour and a half that we've been recording. Um, It's a little bit saturated at this point. I'm a little bit nervous. (laughs) I think the dude needs stitches. Um, We we probably should stop doing this, but for the sake of education, we're going to keep it going. What's a gram of iron between friends? You'll, You'll be okay. Dan, I may need to find a spot in your clinic for an IV iron infusion tomorrow, or if I even make it through tomorrow, because this is this is really bleeding. But you know, I'll, I'll get to that eventually. But you're right; it was it was worth putting off for the purpose of this episode because it was just so much fun, and really, again, just really highlighting how much we've taken away the last few weeks. So, unless you guys have any other thoughts, let's not keep our listeners waiting anymore. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go for it. The last thing I want to say, though, is Fresca. It's an excellent drink. I want to bring this thing back. Topo Chico's great, but it's all out of stock. Get some Fresca. Trying to get that sponsorship. Let's go. And we're back again this week with Dr. Emily Mason, pathologist extraordinaire, who is joining to help us out and get a better understanding of some of these things we've been talking about in our past few episodes in our HemePath series. So thank you again for being willing to spend this time talking with us. Of course. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. All right. Uh, Ronick, you want to tell us a little bit about our second case? Absolutely. This time we have a 50-year-old gentleman who presented to the emergency room with fever, easy bruising, night sweats, and profound fatigue. He had a CBC done on his arrival, which showed a white count of 22,000, a hemoglobin of 5.8, and platelet count of 9. And we had asked for a differential because of these abnormalities in his cell lines. And the cell differential suggested that there were 40% other cells. And, you know, this case is perfect because it highlights something that we talked about in the previous episodes when we get a differential, when we have these things called other cells, or sometimes we're able to even call them blasts. And I just want to highlight the point that what's happening here is that the lab technician or the pathologist is looking at the smear and saying that these cells look abnormal. Sometimes the pathologist isn't positive whether it's a blast or not. So they call it some at our institution, other cells. But if they're sure that, hey, this really does look like a blast, they might just call it 40% blast. But Rona, how do we actually know if it's a blast? And I had learned this during our flow cytometry episode. Um, it's important to go ahead and get flow cytometry so that you can better characterize what the actual phenotypic changes are on the cell. And looking at those CD markers, you're then able to figure out the pattern that allows you to characterize what those other cells actually are. Perfect. That's perfect. So in this case, we we ended up getting the flow cytometry and it was positive 
for CD34, CD33, and CD117. And that was read out as a concern for a population of myeloblasts. So Ronak, what did you do next in this case? So given this abnormality, we thought that the logical next step from here was to get a bone marrow biopsy. So I discussed it with the attending. He had agreed to doing the bone marrow biopsy. And so we had set that up. And just so everyone's clear, I just want to talk a little bit about what a bone marrow biopsy is, because not only do we take a lot of call as a first year, you also get to do your fair share of bone marrow biopsies. So what this process entails is we're essentially trying to get a piece of the patient's bone marrow itself in the form of an aspirate and also a core, I should say. And so what we do is we use the patient's iliac crest, which is kind of the bones around the hip area, um, in order to get two components. So number one, we insert the needle through the cortex into the center of the bone marrow, which as you will recall, is essentially the factory where all of our cell lines are made. And we essentially extract the liquid component, which is the aspirate. You'll recall from our prior episodes that the aspirate is important because we can also run certain tests such as flow cytometry on that component to, again, help us characterize what's going on in there. And then we reinsert the needle again, and we're able to get a core, which is a physical piece of the marrow. And again, that allows us to obtain information about architecture, as well as understanding things like, you know, if there's fibrosis or something like that. Yeah, and, you know, I've actually always enjoyed kind of doing bone marrow biopsies. It seems like as hematologists, you know, thinking about procedures that a hematologist would do, it seems sort of unusual, but bone marrow biopsy really is that thing for us. Actually, you know, I started out my medical career wanting to be a surgeon and, and maybe this is as close as I'm going to get these days, but it's almost like performance, right? Because the, one of the first things you do whenever you take that aspirate sample, the heme pathologist is right there with you. And that first sample is judging the quality of your marrow. So what kind of things are they looking for when you draw up that first little sample of aspirate? And our technicians remind us about this all the time is you're looking for spicules and just trying to see if you see any spicules as soon as you get that aspirate. Yeah, exactly. So these are like little fatty particles. The marrow is pretty fatty tissue that tell you you're in the marrow space and you're not just getting peripheral blood. If you do end up drawing back a sample that barely has any spicules or seems to be mostly peripheral blood, that's what the pathologist would call a hemodilute sample. And at that point, you're basically just measuring the peripheral blood. So it may not be as useful in terms of diagnosis. And that's a super important point because when we think about diagnosis of these acute leukemias, oftentimes we're looking for greater than 20% blasts, but you may not have greater than 20% blasts in your peripheral blood, but you do have greater than 20% blasts in your bone marrow. If you're getting the true aspirate of the bone marrow, not this hemodiluted peripheral blood that may give you a falsely lower blast count. And we'll talk about, you know, the behavior of different hemologic malignancies in other episodes when we get more in depth about those conditions. But each of these immature clones can behave a little differently in terms of where it wants to be. Sometimes they'll be so packed into the marrow that, you know, and they're not necessarily escaping all that readily, and you may not see that many in the peripheral blood, but you go to do a bone marrow biopsy and you can hardly aspirate anything out of the marrow space because everything is so packed in there and so dense. So sometimes you can't really get an aspirate and you end up with a dry tap. We think of that as being like an overly packed marrow, and sometimes all you're left with is a core biopsy sample at that point. Out of curiosity, guys, if if it is a dry tap, what is your way around it? Because is there any way you can 
get some of the material to still do some of the same analyses that we do on the aspirate? Yeah, the, what you can actually do is is take the needle that you went in to get the bone marrow biopsy for and rinse it out in hopes that you may have some cells that were just lining that needle. That that when you stuck the needle into the bone marrow space, it was so packed full of cells you couldn't actually physically aspirate anything out, but your needle itself, those that packed amount of cells is stuck to the needle and you can rinse it out to collect some of those cells. That's a good thing to kind of keep in my back pocket just in case that ever happens. Luckily it hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure it'll the day will come. Looking back, we've talked about things like CD34 as an IHC marker for blasts. We've talked about flow cytometry. And these are two different ways that we've essentially discussed trying to better understand some of the cellular components of the samples that we're looking at. So I was hoping we could talk about these methods in particular and how we better understand blast percentages in trying to make a diagnosis for something like AML, as may be the case in for this gentleman. So Dr. Mason, can you give us an idea of how we use these tests to better understand blast quantification? Sure. So quantifying blasts obviously is an extremely important part of heme pass to get to the most accurate diagnosis. And there's different ways we can do that. Like you said, we can use flow cytometry that we would run on the aspirate material. We also have the aspirate slides that we look at under the microscope and we can count blasts on the aspirate smear. Then we can use the core biopsy for, and we can potentially use IHC to, to look at blast numbers as well. Ideally, all of those numbers will be similar to each other, but that's not always the case. Flow cytometry is run on the aspirate material. Sometimes the aspirate is hemodilute. If it's a packed marrow and you can't get a good aspirate out of it, then your flow is essentially being run on peripheral blood, not on marrow. So so you might not get the best number of how many blasts are actually in the marrow if you have a hemodilute aspirate, for example. The best way for us to look at the cells and see that they are blasts is on the aspirate smear. On an aspirate, we get the best look at the morphology of a cell. So we can really look at the nucleus, the chromatin, are there nucleoli, how much cytoplasm is there, are there hour rods? We can see that best on the aspirate smear. So we think about our best count being on the aspirate. But again, sometimes the aspirate is hemodilute, sometimes it can be patchy, you know, areas of blasts. And so the core biopsy gives us another look and that gives us sort of the architecture of the marrow. We talked about architecture in the lymph node. It's helpful to also see the architecture in the marrow and the core gives us that architecture. And we can use immunostains to look at where the blasts are and how many of them are there. And again, usually the aspirate count and the and the core biopsy, the IHC should correspond pretty well if it's a good if both are a good sample. And, but sometimes we don't necessarily have good IHC markers for blasts. So we can't always use IHC to look at blast numbers because, you know, we think of CD34, for instance, as being a marker of blasts. And often they are 34 is positive uh, in AML, but it's not always positive. There can certainly be blasts that are negative for CD34 and negative for 117, which is another marker we can use by IHC to look for blasts. For instance, monocytic AMLs are often negative for 34 and 117. And those are our two markers that we often use to look for blasts by IHC, CD34 and CD117 for AML. So if those are both negative on the blasts, 
it's hard for us to use IHC to look in the core biopsy, and we really have to rely on the aspirate morphology, the aspirate count, and the flow cytometry. Hopefully, they all correspond. Probably the aspirate differential is the best number in combination with the CD34 stain on the marrow if the blasts are 34 positive. Flow cytometry is probably third place because flow, not only it can be a hemodilute sample, but also when we're gating on blasts by flow, sometimes it can be hard to get a clean population to put our our gate on and say, you know, this is the population that are the blasts and this is the numbers. Sometimes they're really bright for CD34 and we can just say all these really bright cells are the blasts, but sometimes they're heterogeneous for 34. And so we can't just gate cleanly on the 34 positive cells or they just don't stand out as well. So flow can be sort of subjective when you're drawing your gates. And so I, I would say that's probably third place. I would, I would use that third as a, as a third resort if you can't get a good number from the aspirate smears or the core biopsy. That's incredibly helpful. I also didn't know that at all. And I, I, I guess I better understand why we get those different samples, you know, because I kind of just quite frankly, go through the motions of, you know, you get the aspirate, go back and get the core, but better understanding what we do with that information is incredibly helpful and definitely makes me have a new appreciation for what we do and why we do it. So let's go back to the case and just remind ourselves of what we were talking about and get some context for this conversation. So in this case, uh, as you will recall, we did a bone marrow biopsy on our gentleman. Um, And I have the results of the bone marrow biopsy report that, might I add, I feel a lot more comfortable understanding now. And so the bone marrow biopsy results suggested that it was a hypercellular marrow with more than 95% cellularity, and more than 80% of those were characterized as blasts, with the flow from the bone marrow suggestive of a CD34 positive, CD17 positive, CD33 positive, CD13 positive, and an HLA-DR positive uh, landscape, essentially. So collectively, this information seemed to be most consistent with an acute myeloid leukemia. Wow, Ronick, that's a pretty high cellularity, though. Were you able to get any aspirin out of that? You bet I was. Dude's got skills. This guy's got skills. But in all seriousness, I want to break down a couple of things from that report before I ask Dr. Mason a question that I've really always wondered. So the first thing is that hypercellular marrow, whenever we see these marrow reports, we're either seeing a hypocellular marrow, a normocellular marrow, or a hypercellular marrow. And that just essentially means, are there a ton of cells that are replicating in there? Is there about a normal amount of cells that we would typically expect for somebody when we do a marrow, depending on their age? Or is there much lower amounts of cells there? So is the factory working slowly? So it's either factories working really, really slowly, you have a normal factory, but it's producing these abnormal blasts, or your factory is going crazy and hyper-functioning, and you're producing all these abnormal blasts. So that, that's the first thing I wanted to mention about the cellularity. And what's the second, rule of thumb for uh, for cellularity and age? It's it's like 100 minus your age, right? That's what you expect? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. Dan the man, again, giving us the, the real science knowledge here, dro- dropping in some nuggets. As our life expectancy increases and we start doing marrows on 105-year-olds, we're going to have to change that up. But for right now, it does seem to work pretty well. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But the other big thing I wanted to talk about is the flow cytometry results and that immunophenotype. All these terms sound scary when somebody says immunophenotype. It sounds really fancy, but it's just straight up, what's the phenotype of the cells? And these are immune cells. Just kind of think about it that way, immunophenotype. But really, the big thing here is some of those markers, CD34, 
CD33, HLA-DR, those are just immature markers. And, and all of this is just leading us to know that this is a form of a blast. And in this case, with those markers, we knew we had myeloblast. So that's just kind of talking about how we have this AML type picture. Now back to the question that I've truly always wondered, and that's really whenever we have a packed marrow, which I'm surprised Ronick got an aspirate in this case, but again, the guy's got skills and 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 that makes sense. It, it is Ronick. The, the dude's very good at this. But if I were to do this marrow, I probably would get a dry tap. And I was just wondering if you had a dry tap, what can you glean from that? You know, when we're thinking about things like cytogenetic and molecular testing, are you able to get those things from this dry tap? So we rely on the aspirate material for most ancillary tests. Flow cytometry is typically run on aspirate material. Cytogenetics is run on aspirate material. Molecular is run on aspirate material. So if you have a hemodilute aspirate smear, all of your ancillary testing is basically going to be indicative of peripheral blood involvement, not necessarily marrow. And sometimes that's okay. For like an MDS or an MPN, those molecular changes are going to be in the peripheral blood too. So it's not the end of the world to do your NGS on a perif- on, on an aspirate sample that's basically peripheral blood. But sometimes it's not necessarily the best sample. If the process like AML, if you don't have circulating blasts, then running those tests on a hemodilute sample that doesn't have a lot of blasts in it, maybe you're not going to get the full picture. So then what can we do with the other sample types? We can't do very much besides immunohistochemistry with a core biopsy because it is decalcified as part of the preparation process. So that decalcification makes it so that our fish probes don't bind very well, um, and it makes it so that molecular testing can't be performed. It sort of degrades the DNA. So we can't run cytogenetics or molecular testing on a core biopsy sample. We can potentially run molecular, at least, on a particle preparation, which is a third sample that we actually have with every bone marrow biopsy, where we take some of the aspirate material and we clot it in the tube. And then we embed that clot in paraffin and we section that and put that on a slide. So that does not get decalcified. And we have something in paraffin that we can go back to and potentially do molecular testing on. Now, if your aspirate material was all hemodilute, then your particle preparation is also going to be hemodilute. So sometimes the particle is is a good second choice for testing, and sometimes it's not. But a dry tap makes it hard to get ancillary tests because we can't use the core biopsy. And we always talk about doing a needle rinse when we, if we go in there and we can't get the biopsy. What can you glean from that needle rinse? The needle rinse is used for flow cytometry usually, and it can be helpful. We can get Sometimes we get a needle rinse, sometimes we get an extra core that we sort of shake around in saline and try and get some cells to dissociate from it for flow cytometry. And that can be useful. We can get a blast phenotype from that. We don't typically use the needle rinse for ancillary testing either. Speaking of ancillary testing, you know, we're definitely going to want to see a karyotype and NGS panel on this patient, right, Ronick? You betcha. Tell us a little bit about why you want to see that. What kind of information are you going to learn from these tests? So as we kind of talked about, again, in one of our prior episodes, this information, the karyotype information, the NGS information is really important for helping us better risk stratify our patients. And in certain cases, there are therapeutic treatment options that are targeted towards some of these abnormalities or that work in patients that have some of these abnormalities. So definitely something that we want to know both for prognostication purposes, but potentially also for therapeutic purposes. 
Renek, that was beautiful. C- clearly, we're, we're doing a good job here at the Fellow on Call because that was just amazing. I just want to talk a little bit more about why these tests, this these cytogenetic tests and this NGS panel is so important, particularly in AML. So when we think about AML, we actually divide it into three important risk groups. And this is done uh, based on a large series of patients. So there's a large data set where we basically said, based on certain genetic changes or mutations, whether it's larger chromosomal rearrangements or smaller genetic mutations that we pick up with our molecular techniques, what is their overall prognosis and how do they respond to treatments? And we've made three categories. One of those is a favorable risk AML. Another one is an intermediate risk AML. And lastly, there's a poor risk AML. When we actually do an episode about AML, we'll go into a little more depth on what these mean. But from a broad overview, really what we're looking at is there are certain chromosomal rearrangements, translocations, inversions, deletions that place a patient into the poor risk group, or there's some that may place the patient into a favorable risk group. I'm going to give you some some names now, and and I don't want you to get bogged down by this. I'm just going to give you an example. Translocation 821 is an example of a favorable risk AML. So if you ran your karyotype on that bone marrow biopsy and found out that the patient had translocation 821, then we would consider that a favorable risk AML. That patient has a much better prognosis. And when we think about treatment planning, it slightly changes. And we'll we'll get into that briefly during this case, but basically you just have a different induction regimen, meaning you're inducing a remission. You're trying to knock the leukemia down. And then once you've knocked that leukemia down and get them in remission, you want to consolidate that remission. And the consolidation is with chemotherapy only instead of going to transplant for these favorable risk AMLs. For the intermediate risk group and the poor risk group, it's a little bit different. You want to consolidate with a transplant and your induction regimen is slightly different. So, so it's remember those three big risk groups and, and we'll link some of that to our show notes. It's a long table. Always look this stuff up. It, you know, it's really hard to memorize this stuff. The more you reference it and the more you look at it and try to understand what's going on, the, the more likely it's going to stick in your head. Lastly, some of these cytogenetic abnormalities, these larger chromosomal changes, tell us if a patient had myelodysplastic related changes. Again, I'm using these fancy terminology if you're not used to hematology, but what that means is essentially it's a higher risk group that if you had a preceding MDS or myelodysplastic syndrome that evolved into AML, picked up more genetic mutations and became AML, that's generally a higher risk disease. But sometimes you don't catch the MDS, you just catch the patient when they're in AML, but there are certain cytogenetic rearrangements that kind of tell you this is a myelodysplastic related change. And that's when you might see somebody with AML-MRC or AML with myelodysplastic related changes. Again, this is just a higher risk group. Those are some important ways that the cytogenetics can help in your decision-making. And that's why we're getting these tests in this case. So in, in our cytogenetics episode, we talked about just how tedious it used to be to do a karyotype. So these days, it, is that still, is that like a hazing ritual for, for first year pathology <laughs> residents? It, are you still having them cut out little pictures of chromosomes and rearrange them? Or is this all computerized now? Uh, it's all computerized now. And it's way above my 
level of understanding. I could not do a karyotype for you if I had to. That is sort of a specialized information that some geneticists know, but your run-of-the-mill pathologists cannot array a karyotype for you. But it is mostly done with the aid of computers now. So we still have to grow the cells in culture. So karyotype requires dividing cells, not just live cells, but dividing cells so that you can get a metaphase, those metaphase chromosomes. So they have to be cultured for you know, a certain amount of time, then you drop the cells on the slide, and then the computer can sort of scan the slide, look for cells that were in metaphase when you dropped them, where the chromosomes are spread out. And then the computer helps in arraying out the karyotype and sort of analyzing for abnormalities. But it still requires cytogeneticists to go in there and really look once they're sort of arrayed out and stained, the cytogeneticists will still go in there and look for the, you know, rearrangements or deletions or things like that. And remember, listeners, this karyotype is reported ideally out of 20 cells in metaphase. And those sort of abnormalities, any abnormalities that are picked up in a subpopulation of those cells will have a little fraction bracketed after them. So if, say, a particular deletion is only seen in six of the 20 metaphases examined, then it'll say, you know, that deletion and then six slash 20 in the bracket. So you can have a, a sort of heterogeneous population of cells represented on these karyotype reports sometime. And anytime you see more than three changes or three or more abnormalities listed, that qualifies the, the karyotype as being complex, which is usually associated with a worse prognosis. Remember, there are some chromosomal changes that we see that portend a favorable prognosis. So it's really important to always go back to those reference charts and see kind of what you're dealing with when you do get one of these reports. And the other big thing is the molecular testing and how that helps us determine both risk stratification as well as targeted treatment. So when it comes to something like AML, some examples of molecular testing that we want that has targeted treatments is testing for FLT3, IDH1, and IDH2. These are all just gene names. So anytime we, you hear somebody be like, oh, it's a FLT3 positive AML, it's literally just a gene name called FLT3. And it means they have that FLT3 and we have something to target that. So molecular testing is incredibly important. We talked about multiple ways of doing that. And when we have a new diagnosis of AML, we want to know these answers faster, sooner rather than later, because AML is a very aggressive disease. So instead of running that NGS massively parallel sequencing panel that we've talked about before, what we do initially often is run single gene molecular testing, looking for some of these mutations that will change our treatment plan, looking for those, those things that I've mentioned before, like the FLT3, et cetera. And so, Dr. Mason, you know, with this ancillary testing, what kind of timeline should we expect? Uh, is, it, is it really always a couple of weeks? So a karyotype, as I said, requires dividing cells. So the cells do have to be cultured for a little while before you can sort of go ahead with the test. So that takes a little bit of extra time. Generally, within a week, you should be able to have a karyotype result back, gotcha. depending on sort of the volume in the lab and staffing in the lab which can sometimes be a limiting factor. And then NGS also requires a fair amount of time in the lab. So once the sample gets to the lab for our NGS sample, our NGS tests that we run here, once the sample gets to the lab, there's actually like two days of prep time and for isolating the DNA and then getting this, the sample set up on the machine. I think it's about two days and then the sample actually spends something like two and a half days on the sequencer. And then 
It's another sort of half day once the data is ready to be run through the sequencing, the, the pipeline to interpret the data. So just lab time with the NGS is something like five or six days. And then it goes to the pathologist who's going to analyze it and interpret the variants and things like that. So generally, you know, a week and a half for NGS results, a week and a half to two weeks. In addition, NGS samples are batched. So right now, for instance, we can do eight samples on a run and that those eight samples have to be on the sequencer for two and a half days or something. So that means we can do two runs a week, essentially. So two runs of eight. We actually, we have a second sequencer where we can usually get a third run of eight on, but so max probably about 24 samples a week. So depending on where your sample is in the line and if it gets on the sequencer right when it gets to the lab or if it has to wait for the next run, we're looking at roughly like 10 days to two weeks for NGS results. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, when we covered sort of how in very broad strokes, kind of how these next gen sequencing platforms work it's got to take time. I mean, there's just so much data that these machines mm-hmm. generate that the idea that a computer can chew through that even in a day and a half is pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's crazy how much data is generated actually. And so in this case, the ancillary testing slowly started to trickle back in. And this patient had a fish that was notable for a T821, which is consistent with favorable risk core binding factor AML. And so the decision had made to start the patient on a regimen known as seven plus three. And we also added another agent called GEO, which we'll talk about in a future episode. And this was his induction regimen with plans for consolidation. Um, and in this case, it was the HIDAC regimen that we were using. Again, we'll talk about this in a future episode. And given, as Vivek said, 821 being a favorable risk, we were not going to proceed with stem cell transplant in this patient. Now, let's let's fast forward just a couple of weeks, though, and this is to further highlight exactly what Vivek was hinting at before, that it's really, really important to also be looking for a lot of these other mutations that could result in alterations, not only in prognosis, but also in how we approach these patients. So two weeks later, this patient's NGS testing came back, and unfortunately, he had a KIT mutation on exon 17. Prior studies have shown us that changes our favorable risk patient now to a more unfavorable risk or poor risk patient with a much higher rate of relapse. And so in this case, the NGS was super important because it ended up changing our treatment strategy and what we did for the patient in the future. And in this case, because now he's classified as a higher risk patient, we ultimately decided that he should end up becoming an allogeneic stem cell transplant candidate. That was, that was an awesome case. Uh, thanks, thanks for taking us through, Ryan. You know, it definitely shows you that this disease is complex and, and some of the treatment decisions are really nuanced. I'm excited to, to go through a, a whole dedicated episode on some of these things. And, and Dr. Mason, thank you so much again for all this information. It's been awesome going through all these cases with you as well. Great. Well, glad to be here. Thanks for being our inaugural first guest host on this. We really appreciate it. And I I learned a lot today and Ronak, I'll let you do the final words for today. You know, I I think uh, again, the, the idea behind all these episodes on heme path was really, this is an area that I will say, you know, we don't get a lot of experience with, but it's so important to the work that we do on a daily basis as hematologists and oncologists. And so I, Dr. Mason, I want to thank you for sharing all of your expertise with us. 
but also highlighting just how important the pathologist is as part of our team and in, in helping us come up with a diagnosis. You know, I can say now with certainty that sometimes I feel like you guys don't get as much credit as you all deserve because we couldn't, we surely could not do what we do without you. So thank you so much. So I think though, that that wraps up another fantastic episode of the fellow on call and especially the first of our capstone series this time on HemePath. Any final words from anybody else? Last thing I have to say is this is why you always have to go down and talk to your pathologist because they'll teach you a whole lot of stuff that you didn't understand. And each time you go down, you learn something new. Anytime. We love to talk with you guys. And this is a great series you guys are putting together. That's great. Thanks. Take care, everyone. See you later. See ya.